Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back to our latest season of Garden Better, your podcast on everything to do with the garden and the outdoors. I'm horticulturalist and sustainability specialist Adam Woodhams, and with me is the wonderful Jenny Dillon, horticulturalist and magazine editor from Better Homes and Gardens. Hi, Adam. Welcome back. Thank you, and welcome to you too. Hey, it's warming up out there. What are we going to look at in this coming season? Well, I think we'll get ready for the summer garden where everything is growing. And we will, of course, have a fantastic selection of guests for people to listen to all the way across summer. And don't forget Milton Black. He'll be here to talk to us about Gardening by the Moon and his very special tips. Who could forget Milton Black? <laughs> and this summer we have a very, very special episode or two episodes for you, a couple of travelling tips on a gardener's visit to Norfolk Island. So that'll be coming up later in the season. Okay, Adam, so what are we going to talk about today? Well, I reckon it's a perfect time to be talking about getting your garden ready for summer, your garden and outdoors after all of that sort of horrible, horrible time of winter and then that craziness of spring. Yeah, and it's going to be really busy actually. Yeah, it is. And a very timely topic. We're going to have a look at bushfire preparation around the home and garden and talk to an expert on just that very subject. So shall we get straight into it, Jen? Absolutely. Now, let me tell you, it's summertime. Chances are your garden is starting to look pretty darn hot and bothered. I know mine is. Now, you would rather be enjoying some time by the pool or on the deck or at the <laughs> beach. Or I, I picture you, Jen, as more a more a comfy chair underneath a shady tree with a good book. Am I right? No. Like, with no. some fairy lights. <laughs> no, I'm I'm an active gardener. I go out there as often as I can. It's just, it takes my worries away. There is a lot happening in the garden yes. and it is a good time to be really summer proofing your garden. So let's have a look at what everything, everything that people can do. And I think pruning is one of the big things because we saw all of that, you know, that rapid, crazy sort of growth that you get over spring. Yeah. And I think it's important to consider that the type of pruning you're doing now it's not really we're not talking the big heavy duty stuff. No. We're not we're not talking getting up there and chopping branches off trees and pruning your rose bushes back. This is more that that light duty pruning, isn't it? And it's really really essential. Um I mean especially now that most of the spring flowers have gone, you can go in there and have a have a trim and it helps this little tip pruning helps the the, the bushes and and your plants get more dense. Mm. And it's it's where you can really see the stuff that didn't quite come back strong in spring that, you, you know, in, during winter, you can't really predict that, but it's only in spring when you see whether it gets some vigorous growth back on it or not that mm. you know what's coming on. And I think that tip pruning thing is the really essential one, particularly if people have hedges or any sort of shaped plants or, you know, things they're trying to keep within a certain alignment along the edge of a path. That tip pruning is where you get, you're basically turning one growth shoot into two or three yep. growth shoots. And that's where you get that density. And you hide some of that scraggliness, don't you? Absolutely. I'm just chomping at the bit to get into my lily pillies. They're just about to come out in those beautiful little pom poms. Mm. And once they've gone, in I go, chop, chop. 
Yeah, and it's essential to make sure that, as with any pruning, that you're using really clean tools mm-hmm. and really sharp, really sharp. sharp tools. Mm. And it is just good practice to clean them between things. So if you if you're switching between, say, a Maria hedge to a lily pilly hedge, it's mm. just good practice to actually clean those tools b- uh, between that. And the easiest way to do that, I find, is I have a little spray pack with some metho in it. Yes, um, and just spray the blades and wipe them down with a with a clean rag, and that yeah. gets all the that gummy um, sap off yes. and things and reduces the chance of transferring any funguses or anything between Any plants. diseases, yeah. Um, but it's also important to um, possibly get extra flowers coming onto your plants, isn't it? That's at what this, happens. At this time, yeah, you bring mm. on that second flush, particularly anything that's been uh, flowering in spring like roses. That's a classic example. Yes. That Often you give them a tip prune, you get rid of those spent flowers now and you can see a really good strong flush of summer flowers coming through. Yep. So it is it is very simple maintenance. Um, now, what else? What, what about bulbs? What do you reckon we should be looking at with bulbs around about now, Jen? Because most of those, those spring flowers are sort of on their downward slope, aren't they? Yeah, but some things, you know, like say, for example, daffodils, don't pull them out now just wait for the leaves to wither because all those those leaves are just chock full of energy and they go back to the bulbs mm. so they come back stronger next year and you can actually it's a, a neat little trick you, you often see done in in professional gardens in particular is they'll they'll very gently get hold of those leaves as they're starting to dry on the tips and they'll tie them in a, a neat little a neat little um, knot so that rather than going everywhere and looking scraggly they're yeah. all tied up in a bundle and it keeps them looking neat because you you exactly right you don't want to remove those leaves until they're dyed back almost to brown and yes i personally i'm a big fan of letting things like um the jonquils and the daffodils which are very 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 close cousins um letting them naturalize i, I like them to just that's a do lovely their idea in yeah. the garden yes, yeah absolutely so if you've got them in a nice spot then just let them let them stay there underground they'll happily survive and that's some of the bulbs will do that but things like uh for instance tulips if you've been growing tulips most areas of the country, they're not going to naturalise. No, but you yet. know, if, if you're somewhere like Bowral or you know, colder regions around Melbourne, they will. But but they certainly won't in in you know, Melbourne City or Brisbane or Sydney or anywhere like that. So you'll need to lift them and put them and store them in a cool place. Yes, that's exactly right. A cool, dry place. And the the old thing is, you put them in a you know, one of those old orange bags. You know, the those sort mm. of plastic perforated bags, and mm. hang them up somewhere nice and nice and shady and dry, where there's a little bit of air movement, and then mm. you. Uh, of course, you'll have to put them in the fridge again, but that's a completely different story. That's we'll for next talk year. about further down the track. Um, now, mulch. If you didn't do it in spring, what are you waiting for? Get do to it, it now. Yes, as Graham Sait told us, we can save the planet with mulch. Yes, we and can. And that is not an exaggeration. So get out there and mulch. Um, and it is critical too as we come towards the the dry times because you you're going to be saving as much moisture as possible. Well, it insulates the soil. And it restores nutrients to the soil as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And if we do get any rain, it means that it's not going to go to runoff. It's going to get into the mulch and yes. eventually make its way to the soil. But it's not just us that like this time of year, is it, Jen? The bugs are going kind of crackers too, aren't they? I think that you should employ the dialect approach. 
Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Exterminate. Ex- <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Absolutely merciless. There's... But also, you have to make sure you don't kill the good bugs. Yes. Yeah. Well, and this is where there is a very good range of um, organic type products around out mm. there that are very good at at um, attractive. Like, for instance, there's a uh, eco oil, which is a, um, a a naturally based oil, rather than being it comes from a plant extract as opposed to a mineral-based oil, mm-hmm. um, and it actually contains an attractant, so it attracts beneficial bugs at the same time. So not only are you dealing with the bugs that are causing you a problem, but you're basically sending out a, a huge call to the, the good bugs to come in and eat what's left. So yes. there's some very clever products out there that are useful for getting rid of a lot of, a lot of these pests. And don't think just because they're a certified organic product that they're not going to have the results that you need. Many of these products are, are very, very effective and you just have to ch- modify the way you actually use them. Well, they were used 100 years ago, so... They worked then. Mm, mm, exactly, exactly. And I reckon this is actually one of my five favourite times with herbs. Like many of us grow herbs all year round, you know, because there, there are all those yes. ha- harder woody type herbs. But this is a time of year that some of my favourites you can really have, you know, go to town with. So things like uh, coriander and basil. They're, I've got to admit that I, I just like the that real zing of the smell and the, the smell. taste of them. And yeah. they look pretty as well. I love basil leaves, that sort of, you know, soft, mouldy, you know, roundish, you know, quality that they yeah, have. Yeah, and and there, there's a wide choice of them too because there's that the beautiful, the typical green one that we're used to mm-hmm. um, that, that's most often used in pesto, but then there's also the, you know, the uh, the Thai basils and things like that that are purple leaves and quite pointy and mm. they, they can be quite ornamental. They're lovely. And you don't have to have them as a, just what I was going to say, you don't have to have them in your garden. Put them mm. in pots and make think of interesting sorts of containers to put them in. What? They're quick growing and, you know, easy to replace. And they are one of those plants that will grow. They're one of those sort of herbs that will grow well in a little bit of shade because yeah. a lot of the herbs we think of as needing lots of sun, but, but both basil and coriander do tolerate a bit of shade well. And the the real trick with the both coriander and basil is they like that walk that fine line between being moist but not wet Mm -hmm. and if they dry out they'll very quickly bolt to seed so and I I can assure you you can try and pluck those seed heads off or the flower heads off as much as you want but they'll just keep putting out more because once it's triggered to to send the flowers out then that's it game over red rover yeah um so just just replace them with new plants don't don't panic and understand too this is an interesting one with uh with coriander that we tend to think of coriander for use mainly for the leaves, but many um, recipes, in fact, call Have for the, the roots. roots or the seeds. And you know what? So. You can't buy coriander with the roots attached. That's <laughs> so annoying. They've chopped the roots off. <laughs> and that's in many recipes actually call for it. Yes. But the, the, the issue can be there that you're buying coriander and you want it for the leaves, but the coriander may well have been bred to be a seed variety that actually goes to seed very quickly. Mm. So make sure you're getting a variety that's one of the one of the leafy ones, or otherwise just plant them in succession. So you plant plant after plant a mm. couple of weeks apart, and you'll have a a good supply. And I reckon now's the best time to be spreading some soil wetter. Yes. So uh, particularly lawns, gardens, both get some soil wetter, a good quality granulated one. Um, you don't need to water it in, but what it means is that when we get any rain or even dew, that will activate that soil wetter and that moisture will be going down into your plant roots rather than running off. And I think also, you know, because we've had this prolonged period of, of, of no rain all over the country basically, is that you should check that your soil's not hydrophobic. 
Mm. Because then mm. any rain that comes and even the soil wetters that just rendered in they just don't work. Yeah, it, well, that that's where the the good quality those um, uh, powdered soil wetters mm. they actually contain a surfactant which breaks that breaks hydrophobic. That yeah, yeah, so that that's where they work better. And it's worth understanding that difference between the the surface type uh, soil wetters with a surfactant in them and the ones you put in the ground, the water crystal type of things, which are slightly different. They're a reservoir product yes. as opposed to a, a soil wetting product. But I reckon I reckon that'll see you looking uh, pretty good through summer and you do that work now, it's a comfortable time to be doing it before it gets too hot. Before it's too hot. Now, look, when it comes to bushland, we are a pretty lucky country, even though we're the most urbanised country on the planet. Yet most of our cities do still have big pockets of green. Many suburbs have nice big swathes of bushland or they adjoin national parks and vast areas of bush. Now, this does make it beautiful, but it also means that even in suburbia, suburbia, we have to be aware of bushfire risks. Now, I reckon, Jen, we need to look at some of the simple steps that people can take to make their homes bushfire safe because it's not just if you've got gum trees at the end of your backyard. Fire can travel kilometres oh, from where God. the front yeah. is. So it, you do need to think about some of these things even if you're not right there on the edge of the bush. So I reckon let's kick off with one of the simple ones. Okay. Well, how about keeping your lawn well mown and um free from dead grass and things that can catch fire really quickly from embers. Yeah, and that is a good one. You forget about that. Uh, that It's surprising. You tend to think about a fire moving through grassland or through scrub or for, through trees, but it is amazing when it's hot and dry and windy, if you've got a lot of dead grass, even in your lawn you've let grow a little bit long, it can move through your lawn. It's, It'll move really quickly, mm. yeah. And what about trimming out? Dead branches from trees and shrubs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just fuel it's sitting kin- there. Isn't it's kindling, it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, basically. That's that's what it comes down to. And some of that stuff that's sitting inside a tree or a shrub can be complete cliche, but tinder dry. So it can go up very easily. Oh, and- is that the first tinder dry of the season? <laughs> No, I think we got beaten to that about six months ago. <laughs> Although, or is it now a permanent setting? Probably. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I think I think it probably is. And branches overhanging the roof—that's another one. It's and that's that's one of those ones that creeps up on you, doesn't it? You mm. you get trees that you don't realise have slowly but surely stuck an arm out over your roof, and there can be a lot of matter in that in that branch itself. Or particularly if they're eucalypts, um, then that's a, they can obviously when the right conditions occur, you get a crown fire, or and they can go up very quickly because of all the oils in those leaves and take your house with it. And they can take your house with it, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes, gutters. It's hard mm. climbing ladders. Yeah, if you if you're not up to doing it yourself, ladders are are quite dangerous. Um, they do take a lot of care. I think we forget how how dangerous they are. And in fact, I still think the highest rate of admissions to hospitals <laughs> for accidents around the home is still from ladder falls and yeah. injuries. Yeah. yeah. So so just be be very careful if you don't feel you're confident with with what doing that. What do you think about leaf guards though, or on gutter guards? Yeah, look, they're they're interesting. Some of them are very effective, but you do uh, the problem that I have. Seen over years and years of of doing all the stuff that I do is that you can end up with the material sitting on top of the yeah. gutter guard and it breaks down and you end up with actually like a layer of super Soil. fine sediment inside the gutter, which although not flammable, ironically it can end up reducing the volume and carrying capacity. And then of your you gutter, get weeds so. growing out of your and roof. then you get weeds growing out of that. So yeah. you do. Still I had need a fig to... tree growing out of my roof at yes. one stage. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, we had moss in our gutters at the at our last place, um, and it had fixed gutter guards, and it was a total pain to fix the problem because mm. the the gutters had filled up to nearly half with a layer of of uh, sediment and moss, and then I had to screw these things off and scoop it all out and it was actually quite difficult. So think carefully about that. That in itself can be an issue. But, you know, if you're keeping your trees pruned back, then it shouldn't be as much of a problem. But don't forget about your drains and gutters on your driveway, on pathways and things like that because they can have a lot of, uh, mm-hmm. of leaves, uh, leaf fallen material in there which can, can go up as well. And uh, keeping the trees close to your home, lift that canopy and any other buildings, outbuildings like sheds and garages and stuff, you want to keep canopies really well pruned on anything that's that's close to the home. And the recommendation is that you keep it lifted about two metres above the ground. So that means that if you get a low fire coming through, it's less likely to actually yep. spark that canopy up. Yeah, well, um, I'm, my family's a victim of that. We, we had a little hill behind our house and was planted with gum trees and just went up so quickly. Mm, mm. And there were, nothing was done to it. They, there was so much litter. I mean, this wasn't in Australia, so you're not sort of on on alert for um, bushfires all the time. And it rains all the time where I grew up, but mm. that fire was, just took hold so quickly and it was so noisy. It was scary. Mm, it is. It's quite frightening when, you, when you're close to a fire. Now, look, another one to think about too is moving anything flammable away from your house. If there's a risk of fire. So I'm Talking everything like you know that stack of firewood you didn't use through winter, mm-hmm. or that you've got you've got piled up for the fire pit, um, your outdoor furniture, the dog kennel, the front doormat. Wow, yes, yeah. of course, it can catch fire really easily, particularly yeah. if you've got you know the old coir style, yeah. style mat. Yeah, so stuff like that. If there's a risk of fire, do make sure you get them away somewhere away from the home. If you're putting in a new shed and you're potentially in a fire risk area, then think about keeping the shed a bit further away from the home because those those tanks of fuel can go up um, or even the fuel that is in a line trimmer or a mower, given very hot conditions, if a fire is there, it can expand enough that it explodes and then you've got the vapour and it only takes one spark and and it's off. So, Or use battery equipment. Then you don't have to worry about it, do you? That's what I do. There's no no sort of wrenching your arm off trying to get those things started. And another one to think about too is your gas bottles. Yes. You know, so your, your barbecues mm. um, or if your house has uh, gas supply with those big tanks, you know, on the side of the house, mm-hmm. um, make sure they have special burst valves on them so that if they get too hot, um, the burst valve actually pops rather than the tank, in fact, right. ins- exploding. And what's important is that when those tanks are installed, that those burst valves are pointing away from the house so that if the gas does rupture the valve and it ignites, it's not actually a flamethrower pointing at your house. It's That's a instead. very, very good tip. Mm, yeah. Mm. And the other thing is have lots of hoses. Yes, yes, having having and quality hoses, yeah. Quality hoses and sprinklers. Have enough length of hose to reach all of the corners of your um, actual property. So you, mm. if, 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 for instance, you've got a, a tap on each side of the house and you're on a normal suburban block, 
make sure you've got enough length of hose to be able to reach right down to the back boundaries to stop the fire before it. If, if say, for instance, it gets into the shrubs at the back of the yard, so you've got enough hose to be able to get down that far to actually put it out. If you're on a larger block, then enough hose to reach all the way around the property, like the the actual the built area itself. So you can, you know, get out within 10 or 20 metres of, of the house and be able to keep things watered down. But, uh, yeah, I, I reckon that's a good series of tips for us, Jen. So you've done all your prep, but what next? Every home should have an emergency plan, even if you're not right in a typically bushfire-prone area. We thought we'd turn to the experts for some advice. Anthony Bradstreet is from the Rural Fire Service of New South Wales. Anthony, welcome. Thanks for having me. Well, it is it is a growing issue for increasing areas of the entire country. It's Obviously, it's not just New South Wales, but there's something I think that's really worth remembering, and that's uh, the 2003 bushfires in Canberra. Now, they really, I think, changed the way we tended to think about bushfires because this was a situation where, very sadly, four people died. We had nearly 500 injured 470 homes were either lost or severely damaged. And the big thing about this is a lot of that was right in the middle of suburbia. It wasn't out on the fringes. It wasn't in country towns. This was right in Canberra proper. Now, that caused quite a rethink for us, didn't it? It it really reset the way we look at this stuff. Yeah, it definitely did. That was one of the first examples that we really saw of what we call a firestorm. It's this kind of fire behavior where we see uh, large amounts of burning embers uh, getting blown into the middle of suburbia, um, and they can threaten homes, properties, um, and as we've seen, yeah, there were deaths and there were it was a large number of injuries uh, as part of those Canberra fires. And the impact of those embers on the community uh, and on properties um, really did force us to have a bit of a rethink. Mm. Uh, well, and a, a great example of that was the recent fires that were in fact very close to my home, the Perigian fires. Um, people may have seen that footage on the, the six o'clock news where it was literally like a snowstorm of ash, of burning ash. It was just absolutely terrifying. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And and anyone who's seen any footage from these fires where you are seeing the burning embers flying um, or being blown uh, by very strong winds um, through the middle of communities, uh, it is a really difficult situation, um, both for people to deal with on the ground, but also for firefighting authorities. The interesting thing too is that uh, that is where you get a transfer of fire a very long distance, isn't it? We're talk- we can be talking one, two, three, four, five kilometres from the actual fire front when you get these, these flaming embers get to a property, they get to the long grass at the back of your house, they get to any of those situations and suddenly you are right there in the middle of a fire. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. And and we're we're finding ourselves putting out more warnings more frequently for these fires where burning embers are being carried well ahead of the fire front. And as you say, it can be three, four, five kilometers or more um, under the worst conditions. We know fire, um, those embers can be carried a very long way ahead of the fire front. They create new spot fires and they do threaten properties. Uh, mm. As you say, you know, they, they can really take hold in all of the nooks and crannies around your house, mm. um, any of the mulch in the garden, uh, any of the vegetation up against houses. They really are a big threat um, to communities, even if you are in the middle of town, even if you are in the middle of suburbia, even if you live right on the coast, in the beach, in a coastal town. Um, they're a big threat 
Mm, and that's where you see these situations where you you do see a row of houses and just one in the middle seems to have, have gone up and all the rest are, are fine on the edges. That's that, that ember-blown attack that's that's caused that. Now, and you know, this is all sort of amplified by the fact that intensity of fires seems to be increasing. We're seeing hotter, stronger, meaner fires than we used to, and they're starting earlier in the season. I think this is what blew everyone away um, up my area in, in the Sunshine Coast was the fact that we were looking at full summer intensity fires, but basically on the back of winter. It was just frightening stuff. Yeah, that's exactly right. We, we have seen that over the last year. Um, as this prolonged drought has impacted uh, the vegetation all the way across uh, the eastern seaboard, um, we have seen fires happening both later and earlier in the season. So uh, last year uh, we saw at the very tail end of the season uh, the fires impacting the Tarthra community on the far south coast of New South Wales. Once again, that was a fire that wasn't necessarily a big heat of summer, you know, 40 degree day fire. Uh, that was uh, after the the end of summer, um, but it was wind driven. Mm. And because we've got mm. such dry vegetation, um, dry vegetation mixed with a little bit of heat and those strong winds, that's enough to create some really challenging fire conditions. Yeah. And once again, as we just spoke about creating those embers, Blowing them right into the centre of town, yeah. And ironically too, it's when you get a a bit of a break in the drought that in fact creates more fire situations if it's then followed by the dry conditions because you get the big, the rush of growth of all the grasses in particular, which are the things that then dry out very quickly. So you get that that cycle continues as the fuel, the fuel load builds up very, very quickly. Now, all of this really should serve as a trigger for people to increase their awareness of what's happening with fire, but also their own planning. And as I said, it's not necessarily because they're on the fringes of suburbia with some bush in their backyard. It's people in suburbia should be developing their own, you know, fire and evacuation plan, shouldn't they? Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, now really is the time um, to be planning uh, wherever you live. Uh, this is the time to be planning, preparing your household, taking those um, those last minute preparative steps to mm. make sure that, you know, the home is prepared, that you've cleared anything, uh, any flammable materials away from the home. But most importantly, that you have a bushfire survival plan in place. Mm. Uh, the people in your home will know what they will do if a bushfire In the threatens. case of a bushfire coming, yeah. And I think an important thing too is that once you develop a plan like this, you've, you've got it in place, you know, that if everybody in the household knows it. So it's not something, you know, sure you might have to revisit it every 12 months because of changes in traffic conditions or something. But the fact is you you develop this once and you've, you've got it there and everybody knows it. Now, what do people have to think about when they want to develop a, a bushfire plan or an emergency plan? Yeah, look, there's there's a few really easy tools that are out there to help people to make their bushfire survival plan. Um, we've got a great website, uh, www.myfireplan.com.au. People can head there. It asks them some simple questions about what they would like to do if if a bushfire threatens. But there's really three key questions that people need to know the answers to. Um, where will they go? If they need to leave, uh, how will they get there uh, and what will they take? Um, and if if you have all of those questions answered, then that's the real basis for a good, solid bushfire survival plan mm, because, mm. as you say, um, you do need to have the plan in place, but you also need to be flexible. Um, situations will change. Uh, you might be at home. You might be away from home. You do need to be flexible 
um, as to know what you will do if mm. a bushfire threatens. And and simple things such as having a plan for where if if you have got a couple of people are away, they're working for the day or whatever, a plan of where to meet if you have done an evac, so you don't have everybody freaking out, wondering where, wondering where everybody is. And I think it's it's worth people thinking about it too that, that this is useful not purely for the the bushfire perspective it can also be very useful as a storm evacuation plan that it's it's not just simply that that one channel of problem it can be useful across the board now i had an interesting thing happened up our way we were we were on evac standby for about 4 days so it was pretty pretty uncomfortable there's only mm-hmm. one road really runs into our little township so basically, you know, if that road got cut off, we would have been staying and defending. Yep. So it, it's pretty scary sort of stuff. I was keeping on top of things through uh, the Queensland Rural Fire Service, their webpage. They, were, they, they had uh, rolling media updates where you constantly could find out what was happening. They had their interactive map that told you the, the status of all the different fires. And I found a really interesting thing. A lot of people were heading straight to social media and they were looking for information there. But the problem was they weren't going to the RFS social media feed. They were going to the community Facebook page or they were going to this or they were going to that. And there were people who I can only describe as trolls who were positively enjoying the fact that they were worrying people and they were putting up information that was conspicuously incorrect. They, they were talking about, oh, the local hardware stores just burnt down. Oh, the petrol station's about to go up. Oh, the back of the pub's on fire. And there was one guy obviously got really sick of this. So he started following around this other guy's comments and posting photos of the things that had not burnt down <laughs> that wow. this guy was saying had burnt down or were on their way to burning down. But the biggest problem was that other people were seeing these first comments and going, oh, my God, I'm terrified. What are we supposed to It was really scaring people. So my point is, I guess, that it is critical that people seek the information from the actual source, not go on to – I'm sure some of these places are very reliable, but it only takes somebody deciding they're going to have a bit of a game and suddenly it could end up with somebody – injured or, or worse, a fatality yeah. by following poor information. So yeah. go to your webpage specifically. You guys do have a presence on social media too, don't you, where you keep updates rolling through? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Every fire authority around the country will be um, putting out warnings um, during major fire events and they're definitely the authoritative source. Mm. Um, that we're trying to make sure that the teams that are writing those warnings have the most up-to-date information from the firefighters on the fire line. Um, so that information should be the most credible. Um, it, it is fascinating, um, you know, the, the chaos during a fire event um, from the people on the ground. We do know, and I've been part of a team that's interviewed hundreds of people and, and heard their stories um, from before the fire, during the fire and after the fire. Um, and it is really common. People will want to find out more information. Mm, they'll they'll mm. get the warning and then they want to find out more. Um, but we always try to make sure that we're putting out information through those official warnings, also through social media, mm. um, but from an authoritative source. Yes, That's yeah, the big thing. Yeah, you, you do have to question everything. Yes. And look, I, I have to say at this point too, the, the job that you guys do is just absolutely astounding. You know, to, to be so close to it and to see it in action it is just absolutely incredible, you know, putting your lives on the line for, for other people who you're probably never going to meet in your entire life to to be 
doing everything to to stop that fire and save that community, I think is just astounding stuff. So I will say a big thank you to everybody out there in, in RFSs everywhere that, that does your stuff. So Absolutely. And and the big thing is they're from their own communities. Yes. Most of them are volunteers. Um, they're part of their community, helping out their community. So, yeah, they, they absolutely deserve a lot of thanks. Yeah, and the way they mobilise is just incredible. And then, the, you know, then people like the, the salvos appear out of nowhere making sausage sandwiches. And yep. cups and tea. Yeah, exactly right. Absolutely yep. incredible. Hey, now, look, how should people make a decision about whether they should stay to defend their home or to evacuate? Because this is not something that you should decide on lightly, is it? This is pretty no. big stuff. No, it, it really is. And look, th- there are a few things that you can do to help inform that decision. It's probably not as simple as just, well, I'm going to defend all the time or I'm going to leave all the time. Um, it, there is a thing called fire danger ratings, okay? So you might have seen these on the side of the road. This is sort of the watermelon meal, wheel of um, mm. uh, very high fire danger, severe fire danger, up all the way up to catastrophic or code red in some states. Um, what that means is that's actually an indication of how challenging and how threatening a fire will be if it starts on that day. Mm. So... Once we start getting up to uh, severe, extreme or catastrophic fire conditions, that's actually indicating that no matter what standard your property is built up to, um, properties aren't necessarily going to be defendable on those mm-hmm. days. Mm-hmm. So if your home was built prior to a lot of the building standards that were introduced following the Bla- the Canberra fires and the Black Saturday fires that were really designed to try to make homes a lot more resilient to bushfire, um, then it really will be safer to leave mm-hmm. uh, than to stay and to try to defend those older properties that just aren't going to be as defendable under those ca- the, under those conditions. So um, if it's a high fire danger day or a very high fire danger day, and if you and your home are both prepared, if they've done all of the things that you've mentioned earlier in, in the story, then, then that's great. Actively defended homes at that stage can be defended. Um, and you definitely increase the survivability of properties under those conditions. Well, and another thing too that I think people forget about is that often power will be intentionally cut to an area when a fire is about to approach to make yeah. sure it's safe for everybody to be fighting fires there. So you can't be relying on power to to if that's part of your strategy for defending your property. Yeah. And water may in fact be cut because yep. the local pumping station may be shut down or, or it may be commandeered by the fire services for filling tankers or whatever the case may be. So you may not have the water pressure <laughs> to yep, be able to stand exactly on your right. roof with a hose getting rid of those embers. So, you know, it's it's worth considering that, that, you know, if you are thinking about defence as a major part of your plan, think about a, a portable pump that you can drop into a water supply and even a small generator. So yep. these these are things to, to think about. Static water supply. I don't reckon enough people know enough about what this is. And and people may have seen those funny little signs stuck out the front of a house on a telegraph pole and they're, they're silver background with blue lettering, yep. um, SWS, static water supply. Can you explain what that means to us and what people can do about that? Yeah. So during a big bushfire, one of the big challenges for firefighters is getting water getting water into their tankers so that they're able to continue firefighting. Um Firefighting tankers don't have huge endless tanks. You know, most of them are, are a couple of thousand litres uh, and some of them are, are much smaller. Um, and when we open up our hoses and we're really trying to fight a fire, we can empty those tanks very quickly. Uh, so we're constantly looking for water sources to try to 
get in, get a line into into a water supply, uh, refill the tanks, and then we can continue firefighting. So there's a few ways we do that um, in built-up areas that that have um, hydrants. We can fill from a hydrant, and that's why you might see those little blue cat's eyes on the road. Mm. They're indicating that for us. But in in um, rural, semi-rural areas where we don't have them, um, we're really looking for water sources. So we're looking for things like dams. We're looking for things like pools. Um, and we don't have those cat's eyes to indicate that where they are. So what we really ask residents to do is to contact their local fire service and we can put up one of these signs out the front of a property that has a dam or a pool on it or a water source. Um, and then as firefighters are driving around, we're able to see those static water supply signs mm. and we know that's somewhere we can go to to fill up our trucks and yeah. continue firefighting, keep to keep protecting properties and lives. Mm. Mm. Yeah, which is a great idea. So people should think about that if they do are in a situation where static water supply may be useful, do think about registering. And they could do that through their local fire service. Yeah, yeah ab- absolutely. Yeah, make yeah. inquiries about how to do that. Yeah, yeah contact okay. their local fire control centre or fire station and they should be able to point them in the right direction and help them out. Excellent. And Anthony, any other quick tips for us? Yeah, look, heading into the season, it, I just can't stress how important it is for people to have a bushfire survival plan. So if they're able to head along to myfireplan.com.au, that's a great start. Um, and as the season really does ramp up, you know, we, we have seen a, a very protracted start to the season. We've had a lot of fires across northern New South Wales, across southeast Queensland, and as that heat heads further south, we're just looking at a, a very long and challenging season ahead. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think we've had uh, over 5,000 fires for this season so far, over half a million hectares burnt, which is over double uh, a bad year mm-hmm. um, for particularly northern New South Wales. Um, so it it's really isn't any ordinary fire season that we're facing this mm-hmm. year. So um, people really need to be able to keep up to speed and up to date with the latest information uh, and they can do that by uh, visiting the Fires Near Me website or app, uh, or their app on their phone. Um, that's got all the latest information on fires across New South Wales. And there's similar uh, app applications and websites across all the different states. So really planning and awareness are the keys. That's that's what it comes down to. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Anthony. That's some great advice, some great info. And if you want to know more about your local fire service or fire situations, just search for rural fire service in your state. And although they have slightly different names, you will come to the right webpage fast enough. Anthony, thanks, mate. Thank you. Gardening by the Moon with Milton Black. Hi, Milton. How are you? Very well, Jenny. And yourself? Oh, not too bad. Well, I'll tell you what, it's a great week for gardening, really. And I mean, this weather is no exception. So the best days for planting above-ground crops until we go to the first quarter of the moon on the 4th, and we have that period right through to the 8th of uh, uh, February. Now, what you should be doing, all above-ground crops. Right. Now, your flowers, your tomatoes, your lettuce, your broad beans, anything that grows above the ground. Excellent days, absolutely superb. In um, On the 2nd, on Monday the 2nd, the moon's still in Aquarius but moving towards Pisces, which is a very fertile sign. So what I would suggest on Monday the 2nd is that you can transplant on that day. If you've got plants there that need transplanting, some of your little uh, uh, boxes that you want to retransplant. That's a good day to transplant. And the moon moves into Pisces on Tuesday, very, very fertile 
sign. So that's all above ground crops as well. Now, you don't plant on Wednesday, the 4th, because that's the first quarter of the moon. The moon's in Pisces, very fertile, but it's no good because the moon is, is squaring up with the sun. Not a good time to plant at all. So you can have a long lunch that day. Okay. But the moon, is, but the moon on Thursday, the 5th, excellent. It's in Pisces, so keep going with your above ground crops. Now, the moon enters Aries on Friday, and it's in there for Saturday. And uh, those are two days where you can go and do your shopping and things like that, a bit of watering, etc. But on Sunday, the moon enters uh, Taurus late in the afternoon. So if you want to potter around the garden and still do a, a little bit of above-ground cropping and planting, then I would say Sunday afternoon is an ideal time to do it into your garden. If it's not too hot, and, and with this daylight saving at the moment in some states, I mean, it's a nice period there to, to do these things. So that's how we see the moon planting for this week. Incidentally, incidentally. Yes. Did you, did you hear about the restaurant on the moon? Did you hear about the restaurant on the moon? Oh, was it selling cheese? No, no, it's great food, but there's no atmosphere. <laughs> hey, listen, and, and just, just for those people that give blood too, you know, uh, on a full moon is the best time to donate blood. Did you know that? It's uh, because blood donors prefer to give during a waxing moon when the moon's coming up. So over this, uh, this week that we've just been talking about, it's excellent for giving blood because the body can replace that blood faster when it's coming up towards a full moon. So there you go. There Catch you, you next week, Jen. Fantastic. Okay, take care, Milton. See you soon. Well, that was another great episode, Jen. I just want to rush out into the garden myself. Oh, I'm not stopping you. Off you go. <laughs> Adam, where can people find you? They can find me in the garden or they, ah. can, they can look me up on YouTube. Just search Adam Woodhams and I'll pop up there. No problem at all. Or on Instagram, of course. And if you want more garden inspiration before the next episode, you can pick up the latest copy of Better Homes and Gardens magazine at selected supermarkets and news agencies. So we'll see you next time, Jen. You bet. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.